Okay, Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. I'm just going to pray for us quickly. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that gives life. Um, Thank you for this story. I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear and hearts to understand. Help us um, to know that we are forgiven and help us to love you more. Amen. Well, a big welcome from me as well. I see there's a a number of new faces, probably a lot of people visiting. I hope you're welcome. I hope you see that we as a church live to enjoy and declare the wonders of God's grace in Christ. Now, you've caught us where we're in, in a series that we've been going through called Compassion That Compels. And for the past number of weeks, we've been really just looking at the compassionate love of our God for his people. So we've seen how his, his steadfast love abounds. Uh, we've seen that the, his posture towards us isn't a pointed finger of judgment, but open arms of compassion and love. And this, so, so we've mostly been focusing on sort of the compassion part of compassion that compels. This week we're going to focus a little bit more on the compels part, and particularly that God's compassionate love for us will actually compel us to respond to him in love. In a sense, in a sense what I'm, I'm saying is if you're picturing God as the, the father and the prodigal son with the, the open arms, we're invited to be the son or the daughter that receives that that compassionate embrace okay so that's what we're going to look at today so to help us do that we're looking at this passage in in Luke chapter 7 and our outline for day today is simply this um, firstly that we ha- that we have two debtors in the story they're the the Pharisee and the woman uh, but they're also sort of two sinners then we have two views on debt we have the Pharisee Simon's view on debt or sin which is that it deserves judgment we actually have Jesus' view on 
sin or debt, which means that it, it is offered forgiveness. We're going to look at those. And then we're just going to simply consider ourselves. And are, are we one, are you one, who is going to be like Simon um, under judgment or are you going to receive the compassionate forgiveness that Jesus offers? All right, so firstly, two debtors or two sinners. We open and there's a, there's a meal scene. Uh, Jesus has received an invitation from the Pharisee to have a meal. It says in verse 36, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Now, it's helpful to have a bit of context here for the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders, and we've already met them a number of times in Luke's Gospel. In, in fact, Matt mentioned one of them right at the start of the service, where they actually interrupted another meal, where Jesus was, was having a meal with sinners and, and tax collectors because they were offended that Jesus would be hanging out with sinners. Okay? Um, we've also seen that they've been offended when Jesus has claimed to be able to forgive sins. And they're so mad, actually, when he healed someone, when he showed compassion to someone on the Sabbath day, that they're actually plotting against him. Okay, so we, we need to understand that background. When, when Jesus is getting this invitation into the Pharisee's house, on one hand, you might be thinking, well, this Pharisee is he's sort of open to what Jesus has to say. But I think, and as we go through the parable, we'll, we'll see that actually uh, the Pharisee here is pretty cynical towards Jesus. And we see later on that he's actually been a terrible host. He hasn't done any of the normal things that a host would do when you have someone for a meal in your house. All right, so his, his posture uh, is judgmental. In fact, I think it would be safe to say that, that his posture towards Jesus is, Jesus, I'm going to have you in my house. I'm going to sort of be virtuous and virtue signaling in, in having you here. But really... I'm only going to listen to you if you say and do the things that I want you to do and say. And I think actually many of us can tend to have that posture towards Jesus. Uh, we, we, we wanna, we're only going to listen to, to Jesus if he's going to be who we want him to be to say what we want him to say. I wonder if, if that's how you've come to, to Jesus. And I think actually that not just non-Christians come to Jesus in that way, but actually Christians often do. And there's, there's many reasons, some of them good, while there's lots of different denominations. But to be honest, I, I think a, a lot of the different denominations come down to actually people, in, in many cases, are really trying to make Jesus, make the Bible say what they want it to say, rather than listening to, to what God has to say in the Bible. Right? So will we posture ourselves as those who would listen to what Jesus has to say. Well, um, Jesus is, is having this meal at the Pharisee's house and then we're introduced to this woman. In verse 37, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now she's introduced here as a sinner. And given the reaction that we have from the Pharisees later on uh, and the, the alabaster jar, which would have been quite expensive, it's almost certain that she was a, a prostitute, Right? Um, and, and so she's sort of classed here as a, as a really, um, sort of in the Pharisees' eyes at least, a really bad uh, sinner. But instead of the, the story listing all of her past sins, it actually concentrates on her present actions. Okay, that's really important um, and it's, it's eye-opening. Uh, she has her attention 
almost exclusively at Jesus' feet. Now, just in case you, you don't know, when they were reclining at table in, in those days, the table would have been pretty low to the ground and they would have been on cushions. And so their heads would have been sort of into the table and their feet away from the table. If you've ever sat like that, it's a, it's a really good core workout. I reckon they're, they're all, all having some six-packs and whatnot. Um, but, but so her feet are sort of, uh, his, his feet are uh, out from the, the table. So on one hand, it's an obvious place for the woman to come. But as I read verse 38, notice five times um, it talks about what she does with Jesus' feet. Firstly, standing behind him at his feet, right, standing there, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. So she wets his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Five times it's, it's mentioning how she, what she is doing with, with Jesus' feet. Now, feet were disgusting. They were sort of the, the worst part in those days because people tramped around on very, very dirty uh, streets and whatnot. And so to associate with someone's feet was, was sort of appalling uh, in many ways. But if you, if you look through your Bible, you'll see that there's a number of times in the Bible where actually Jesus' feet are mentioned. And it's interesting to, to look at these. So John the Baptist, for instance, he says at one point, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. He's got a, such a point of, of humility associated with Jesus' feet. Mary and Martha, you remember um, Mary, Martha's in the kitchen banging all the pots and pans and, and Mary takes this posture at the feet of Jesus. He's, uh, she, she's taking this sort of submissive wanting to, to learn uh, Jesus at his feet. And then another one's Jairus. He's, he's an important guy. He's the leader of the, the synagogue and he actually falls at Jesus' feet and begs Jesus uh, to heal his young daughter. So this posture of, of being at Jesus' feet is a posture of humility. Uh, it's, a, it's a posture of submission, a posture of dependence. Meanwhile, the Pharisees' attention is on the woman and her debt. See in, in verse 39, Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Right? He's saying if, if Jesus is who he should be, if he's a prophet, then Jesus should be judging her, should be condemning her for her sin. Interestingly, in verse 40, I think Jesus actually shows that he's a prophet, but he's very different to the prophet that the Pharisees are expecting. And Jesus answering, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Jesus goes on to, to share a parable which shows that he, he clearly knows the question that, that Simon has been asking in his mind. So he, he shows that, that he knows, he's a prophet because he actually knows what Simon is thinking. Now we were looking at this passage in the, the staff meeting this week and one, one of the staff um, made what I thought was a, a very insightful observation. Up until this point in the story, um, the, the Simon's been referred to as the, the Pharisee. Right? But at this point, Jesus actually names him as Simon. Now, we don't know this for sure, but it's quite possible, given how bad a host Simon has been to this point, 
that he, he, Jesus didn't, hadn't even been told his name. Right? And if that's true, then Jesus is again showing that he's a prophet by calling Simon by his name. And if, if that is true, it's also interesting because the, Simon's claim against Jesus is if he knew this woman, he, w- he would judge her. But by using Simon's name, Jesus is showing that he knows Simon. He knows Simon, he knows who he is and what he is like. It's interesting. And so then Jesus tells this parable of the two debtors. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, so that's more than a year's wages. It's a huge debt. And the other 50, uh, still a significant debt, but obviously 10 times less. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? So there's a clear difference in this story between the two debtors. One owes 10 times as much as the other. But there's also some similarities in this story. Right? They both can't pay the debt. Both of them need it to be cancelled. And interestingly, uh, both of them respond to this cancelled debt with love. Different amounts, but, but still that's the response. Of both of them. Okay, so so at this point we've got the the two debtors, and and Jesus in this parable is is essentially saying, look, the woman's one of these debtors, and, and Simon, you're you're the other, right? Okay, well now we come to our second point, which is two views on debt or two views on sin. Uh, there, Simon's view, which is sin needs to be judged. And there's Jesus' view where forgiveness is offered. Okay? So Simon's view, judgment. In verse 43, he answers the question. There's only one answer he can give. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. Jesus said to him, you are judged rightly. Now it's interesting that he adds that little phrase, I suppose, in there. It's almost like he's begrudgingly saying, well... Of course the answer is this. But I think he's, he's just saying, but I really don't like the, the whole scenario that you're putting in place here, Jesus. Uh, because when you think about it, what character does Simon associate with in this parable? Neither of them. In Simon's view, he isn't a debtor. He doesn't have sin. He's righteous. Right? In Simon's viewpoint, there's, there's two types of people in the world. There's there's he and the other sort of righteous folk, and there's these dirty, rotten sinners like the, the woman. Right? But it's interesting uh, how Simon comes to this conclusion. I actually think we get a lot of insight into to Simon when Jesus, a few chapters later in Luke chapter 18, tells a parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. I just imagine that he actually has Simon in mind when he tells that parable. You might be familiar with it, but in the parable there's this... Um, there's this tax collector who goes in very humbly to, to pray, but there's this Pharisee that goes in and quite prominently sort of stands there praying, and he does two things. Firstly, he compares himself to the tax collector. He actually prays, thanks God that I'm not a sinner like that tax collector. Right? He's using comparison to justify, well, compared to that tax collector, I'm really righteous. Thanks God that I'm so good. So he uses comparison. Secondly, he himself defines righteousness. He goes on to pray, 
you know, I fast twice a week and I give 10%. Um, offhandedly, I'd say, probably not a bad idea. Uh, we, many of us could do with that. Um, it'd definitely be helpful for the church budget if we were to all tithe 10%. Uh, but you see what, what, what the Pharisee in this, this parable is doing is he is um, defining righteousness in his own terms. Right? So, so he's sort of defining them and, and of course he's meeting that level of righteousness that he's defining. And so Simon, with his judgment view of debt, defines himself as one who doesn't have a debt, who is righteous. Now, if you've got a judgment view of debt and you don't have any debt, then you should probably be praised and rewarded. That's how Simon is seeing himself. But he's then also seeing the woman as someone that's got this debt and she needs to be judged. She needs to be condemned. Uh, for her and people like her, there is, there is no hope. Not only that, it would be a terrible thing for her debt to be cancelled because that would actually give a license to further sinning. Right? Do, you, do you understand that view? The judgment view of debt would say, well, you can't de cancel debt because then all of these sinners are going to go around and keep sinning. Okay. Now, I think we need to be very, very careful. There's a warning for us in this because we can be quick to have this sort of tendency, a bit like Simon, to have this judgment view of sin. Right? We can sort of classify ourselves compared to others as, okay, I'm, I'm okay with God because I'm, I'm holier and more righteous than that person. We can start to define ourselves what it is to be righteous. But we need to listen to what God says, how he defines righteousness. And also when it comes to others, the Bible doesn't invite us to compare ourselves to others in this way. In fact, when we're to, our posture towards others is to be loving and compassionate and caring. Right? Do you see how the judgment view of, of sin is, is an uncaring, unloving view towards others? Whereas we're called to be compassionate and caring. Okay, so this, this brings us to Jesus' view on debt, which I've, I've called the forgiveness view or the cancelled view. Um, yeah, in, in this view, Jesus, as you would say, and this is quoted in, in Romans, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we see that in the story of the two debtors. They're, they're both debtors. One might have more than the other, but, but all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. It is he that defines righteousness. And wonderfully and beautifully, righteousness means to be holy and good and perfect. Uh, it's a great definition, but all of us, Fall short. None of us have loved God with all our heart, our soul, our strength and mind. None of us, none of us have loved our neighbours as ourselves. By this view, uh, we're all unrighteous. We've all sinned and fallen short. Now, when it comes to the parable, I think that Jesus would agree with Simon that Simon is actually not one of the two debtors in the parable. But the difference is Jesus definitely sees Simon as, as unrighteous. Uh, but where he's not one of the characters is, did, notice both of the, the characters responded in, in love. One a little, one a lot, but they both responded in love. Whereas Simon, 
has not responded in love at all. In verse 44 to 46, uh, very striking. Jesus, he looks at the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. Right? Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Right? So it's a beautiful way that he is trying to contrast and show Simon that his, his view of debt is wrong and it needs to change and he's calling him to change. Um, because at a fundamental level, um, what is wrong with Simon's view is that, that he isn't seeing both his, his lack of righteousness but also that he is there with the very one who can cancel the debt. Right? In these following verses we see the, the woman shows incredible love to Jesus and, and Simon's incredible lack of love to the one that forgives sin. In verse, the end of verse 44. And, and notice as I read this out, um, how, he, how he says to Simon, you didn't, but she did. Right, we'll see this a, a few times. Uh, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon has been a terrible host. He hasn't shown love. As I said before, the, the one, even the one in the parable with the, the small debt showed love to the one that had cancelled the debt. I think Jesus is very clearly pointing out to Simon that he is still in debt. He is still in his sin. Simon wants people to be judged on their own righteousness. That's his view. And he will be. And it's a tragedy. He's right there with the one who forgives sin. And he doesn't turn and seek forgiveness. Jesus knows that when sin is forgiven, it doesn't lead to license to sin further, but it leads to love. When sin is forgiven, it doesn't lead to license, it leads to love. In verse 47, he wonderfully affirms the woman. Again, he's still speaking to Simon, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, the phrasing here is, is quite astonishing. What he is saying here is that the forgiveness that this woman has received has already happened. Right? The, the verb in the Greek that's translated here, are forgiven, is hard to translate into English. But it's, it's basically saying this, this idea that, that her sin, it's complete, her, her sin's are already forgiven and the, the consequence of that is ongoing. Right? So she is, she is now walking and living as one whose sins are forgiven. It, it's already happened. It's been dealt with. Uh, so, so that actually makes us see that, that the way we're to interpret her, her actions, right, her loving actions, 
She's doing that not coming to Jesus as one who is, is, is showing him love so that she could somehow earn his forgiveness. But actually she's coming towards him as, as one who knows that he forgives, is trusting in it, and there's this overflow of love to him as the one who has cancelled her sin. It's beautiful when you, when you think about it that way. Jesus doesn't see her as a sinner, but as one who is already forgiven, one who loves much. I just want to take a little aside at this point. I just noted this as I was thinking this morning. Uh, but I think when, when we view this woman, when we come with our sort of our view of, of humanity and particularly men and women, um, it, it'd be possible to, to look at this passage and go, okay, well, the, the Pharisees and, and whatnot, they've got a really low view of women. But it'd also be possible to say, well, but, but Jesus sort of has a low view of women as well. I mean, he's allowing this woman to come in and, and be incredibly vulnerable and and, and, and so forth with him, right? And, and I think our, our modern view of things would be, well, you know, Jesus sort of allowing that, you know, what, what's that say about his, his view of, of women? I think it'd, it'd be possible for us to go, well, he, he must have a low view of women. Now, I just want to say a couple of things to that. One is there's another similar story uh, in John's Gospel uh, where a woman does this and, and Jesus, something like this, and, and Jesus says, you know, what she has done will be told about her forever. Um, and, and so I think he's, he's definitely esteeming her actions there. It's interesting as well, like I, I wonder if Luke sort of anticipated this, the very next thing at the start of Luke chapter 8. Um, it goes on to, to, to highlight all the women that are part of Jesus' ministry and how how vital and important the, the women are to, to his public ministry. So it's a number of things that are esteeming women in the, the context here. Um, but I think as well, we've, we've got to remember that Jesus' view of the world is, is, is so radical. When he says, you know, the first will be last, um, so, so whoever amongst you would be, would be great must be servant of all. Whoever would be first must be slave to all. He's giving us a, a total redefinition here. And I think he is seeing in this woman's amazing humility and vulnerability. Um, he's, he's praising that and seeing that as wonderful. And in fact, he himself shows incredible humility and vulnerability because he, the Son of Man, came not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, he's esteeming the woman here. I hope, hope that we can, can see that. And to be esteemed in, in Christianity is actually to, to, to humble ourselves beautifully and wonderfully out of love as those who have been forgiven. Okay, that's, that's a bit of an aside. I don't know if anyone needed that, but I said it anyway. Um, the last point. Is your debt, your sin, cancelled? So here in this, this story, we see there's two ways that sin can be dealt with. Uh, it can either be judged or it can be forgiven. Jesus makes it clear which option is preferable. It's to, to be forgiven. And, and he wants us to, to know this. He actually wants to draw us into this. 
In verse 48, uh, he, forgives the, he, he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. He's now speaking directly to her. Uh, and I think there's something wonderful and precious in that. But do you notice what happens next? Because I think in that he's actually making a point to those at the table and, and also to, to us who are reading it now. Um, verse 49 says, Then those who are at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? See, Jesus here is revealing himself as the moneylender in the story. He's, he's trying to communicate to, to those who are at the table, is it is he that can forgive the debt, he can cancel the sin, it is he that forgives. Right? And there's a call in this for them to come to him as the one who can forgive sins for forgiveness. Now for our debts to be cancelled, there's a few things that need to happen. Like, like the woman, we, we need to actually admit of our sins. Uh, and we need to have someone that is willing and able to pay them. And Jesus is saying that he is that one. That means that he isn't just pretty holy like the, the Pharisees think they are, but he is completely holy and completely righteous. The whole point of him coming and living the perfect life is, is to be the one who could be that sacrifice, that substitute, so that he could die in our place and cancel our sins. But the, the fact is that Jesus being holy like that means that he knows and feels the weight and horror of our sin more deeply than you and I can. Let me try and il illustrate this. When I was a teenager, went with 25 others from my school for a 10-day sort of hike through the, the bush, right? Had a set of clothes and we're, we're in the bush carrying our own food and, and so forth for 10 days. Now, we were sort of aware that we were a little bit dirty and filthy, but, you know, you're sort of, you're all together. Got back. Right, and you know, it's 10 days. This is the longest I've been apart from my mum. My mum meets us at the bus, and I'm expecting this sort of like warm embrace. Oh, Peter, we've missed you so much. She did not come within 10 feet of me. <laughs> right, to her, I was, I was a stench. In fact, she'd already thought ahead and she'd brought this sort of bag and uh, with clothes and, and soap and whatnot, and she made me clean, like use the showers at school before she'd even let me get into the car. But I share that story because we're, we're actually, we're all like those teenage boys at that, that camp. Like we're, we're living here and we're, we're actually all pretty filthy. Uh, we're, not, we're not that used to it. But Jesus, the holy, righteous one of God, entered into humanity. Just imagine what that was like for him. He's like this clean person just interacting with all of these filthy, dirty people. He would have known the horror and the weight of our sin more deeply than you and I. But he doesn't recoil. His holiness means that he can pay. And as we sang before, he delights to forgive. So we need one who is able and willing to pay. And we need to be willing to let him pay. He says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace.
She's saved because she trusted him. She received his embrace. That offer was there for Simon and the others at the table. And his arms of compassion are wide open for you. How the woman's heart must have sung when she heard her saviour say the words, your sins are forgiven. And I hope those words make your heart sing as well. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. In Christ, If we receive his embrace, let's live as those who are forgiven. Let's live as those that would respond in extravagant, in outlandish love. I was trying to think of, of examples like, like the woman showed this extravagant, outlandish love. Like how could we show that? I was finding it really hard to, to think of examples. And then I just started to ask the question, how would Jesus want us to love him? If your debt has been cancelled, if your sins are forgiven, how does he want you to respond? How can you show him love? We don't do this often, but I actually want to give two or three minutes now uh, for, for you to, and feel free to turn around and talk to the people around you. But just what, what would you say? How could you show Jesus love? How does Jesus feel loved by us when we receive his love? We take two or three minutes now. You can do that by yourself if you want, but feel free to, to talk and share with with those around you. At, at, our, at our last AGM, we, we had lots of things we discussed and then opened it to questions and there were no questions for us. So I'm very nervous um, about now opening up. But did anyone, would, would anyone like to share maybe one or two things that you talked about that, that might be helpful? Like, what are some ways that, uh, that we can show love to Jesus? What, what are some ways that we can delight him as we would receive his warm embrace? Oh, oh we've, got, we've got a hand raise. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you want, that'd be great.
That is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Hope, do you want to stand up as well? No. <laughs> <laughs> It's a really powerful thing. Like, um, it's a lot easier to re- want to receive forgiveness from Jesus than than offer forgiveness to to others. But but He says to us that we're to forgive one another. Yeah. So important. That's so true. So it's like almost using the imagery of the open arms. We need to believe that we're in his love and trust him. That's faith. Yeah, maybe last one, Lizzie. That is beautiful. We can pray to him and that let's do that now. Father, we, we come before you and we, we do not deserve to be in your presence. We do not deserve your love or your care. And yet we can pray to you now with confidence and with sure hope that not only are you listening, but you love us. You care for us. You've shown us compassion. Father, I pray for each one of us here that we would know your compassion to us. We would know your forgiveness. We would trust it. Father, help us to trust it when we are doubting with things. Help us to trust your forgiveness and your love when we are tempted to sin. Help us to trust uh, your forgiveness and love uh, in the hard things of life. And Father, I do pray that we would be those who would be marked as your disciples even by the love that you have shown us, uh, would we love one another so that all people would know that we are your disciples. Our Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.